0: Badass of the Week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by Hi5Content. Rome is burning. The fledgling empire, once forged in iron and ruled with a steady hand, has been weakened by the tyrannical reigns of cruel, sadistic, and self-obsessed dictators. The days of Augustus are gone. His successors, infamous men like Tiberius, Caligula, and Nero, have driven the empire according to their own personal whims. Caligula made his horse a senator. Nero fiddled while the city burned around him. Now, in the wake of their ruin, an age of even more carnage appears as civil war threatens to tear the empire apart. It's up to one man, a man nobody expected, to rise up, take power, and save the Roman Empire from ultimate destruction. My name is Ben Thompson, and I'm here, of course, with my co-host Pat. Good morning. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing okay. How are you, Ben? I'm You've doing good, right? right?
0: Yeah, I'm doing good. I just got back from my uh, my cruise. Weirdly, we started in Venice, and we went down the Adriatic, and we went to a lot of places that were part of the Venetian Republic, the most serene republic of Venice. And I didn't know much about it, and there was a lot of really interesting stuff. So, I think in a future episode, I want to. Get into uh, talking a little bit about Venice, because I think that that's a really cool time period and a really cool area and everything was just beautiful and amazing.
1: Yeah, I'd love digging into Venice more on a future episode. That would be great.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing that jumped out to me the most was there was some general who was a a naval commander. He might have been a doge. He didn't go into battle unless he was wearing red and had his cat with him.
1: Well, obviously, right. obviously that's how you win battles, yeah. duh.
0: Yeah, you got to wear red into battle and bring your lucky house cat with you. Maybe we'll have to talk about that guy at some point. <laughs> totally, totally. And his cat. Yes, I don't know, Pat, did I miss anything exciting while I was gone? I I tried to not read the news as I usually try to not read the news.
1: You know, that's actually probably very, very good for your mental health. Um, So I do occasionally read the news. And there was something that jumped out to me because it reminded me of another badass that we've talked about. You remember Hercules? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You remember how when he was a baby?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, he strangled the, uh, the serpents?
1: Yes. Now, I thought that this was just a thing of myth. But it turns out, according to this news report from a village in Turkey, there was a two-year-old girl who was playing in her family's garden and a snake. Now, it's a 20-inch snake. So, okay, uh, that wouldn't daunt Hercules. This is a two-year-old girl who, as far as I know, does not have any divine ancestry. But you know, the neighbors heard her screaming and they run in and they rush her to the hospital for snake bite injuries. But it was too late for the snake because apparently she had bitten the snake. She grabbed the snake and bit it and managed to kill it.
0: That's fantastic. 20-inch snake is like no small, like I think that's, my son is almost two and he's like a pretty high percentile for for his height. I mean, 20 inches is almost two feet, right? Like that's a serious, yeah. that's a serious snake. Yeah. And, I don't really trust my son to, like, be coordinated enough to get on and off the couch without falling down. So being able to um bite a snake to death is pretty impressive.
1: Maybe that inspired the Hercules myth. Anyway, so that's what's been happening in the world.
0: Well, and that's, how, uh, that's how this sort of thing gets started, right? You know, like a two-year-old bites a, uh, a 20-inch snake to death, and then that story gets told down through the ages. And then 2,000 years mm-hmm. later, we're talking about how she, you know, was a... A 14-foot-long anaconda, and she ripped its throat out with her teeth.
1: Yep, yep. An anaconda sent by the goddess Hera in retribution for things that the kid didn't even do. Yeah, and now so. she's,
0: uh, she's yeah. the, the goddess of vengeance in this town. So,
1: yeah, snakes, watch out. Watch out for toddlers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, it sounds like a. I- I missed a few interesting things, uh, but one one other thing that came up with my with my cruise was, you know, a lot of these places along the Adriatic. We started in Italy, and we went down Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, and then back through Sicily. A lot of old Roman ruins, of course, like, you know, a lot of some of that stuff was in various stages of being well preserved, but there was a lot of really cool uh, Roman, uh, old Roman amphitheaters and, and temples and buildings and, you know, an old wall here that dates back to the empire. And that got me thinking and uh, kind of led into why we picked the character we did for this episode today. So I want to say like, I have this huge back catalog of Badass of the Week stuff. I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. People know more or less where I stand on various things if they're familiar at all with the website. So Pat, I kind of wanted to get into to the stuff that you were into. And when we started doing the show, one of the first questions I asked you was, who's your favorite Roman emperor? Because you are trained in I uh, specialize in Roman history, so you you have to have a favorite emperor. I, got, I want, was curious to know who it was. And your answer was very surprising to me. So I think that t- today we should talk about it further.
1: Vespasian. And he's maybe not the most famous. Uh, <laughs> you know, people think of Augustus you know, as the first real emperor or... Caligula or Nero as the notorious ones. That's what I was
0: gonna say, right? Yeah, I'll be like, yeah, if, oh, the best yeah. one's Augustus, and then you know me, like yeah. I like to gravitate towards the crazy ones. Like, oh, let's talk about mm-hmm. Caracalla or, uh, or <laughs> one of these one of these nutbar guys who yeah. dressed up like Hercules, who thought he was Hercules, and went fighting in gladiator arenas and stuff.
1: So you can go that route um, with emperors who are, I guess, one's favorite or badass because they just take whatever impulses and desires and, uh, I don't know, ambitions or just whatever idiosyncratic agenda they've got going on in their heads, and they just pursue that. And then there's the other kind of badass, which is a lot more practical. Like, okay, we've got a job to do. Let's do it.
0: I like this, right? Because this kind of fits our differing takes on history as well, right? Because on my website, I've written about Augustus Tiberius and um, Julia Agrippina, who was Nero's mom and and Caligula's Mm -hmm. sister. So I've written about the crazy ones. I've never written about Vespasian. I knew of him, but I didn't know too much about him until we started kind of digging into the research on this episode. So I'm excited to hear what you got to say about him.
2: And now for a word from our sponsor.
4: Yeah, so this is Vespasian, and
1: he kind of had a reputation for being very practical and down to earth, and not showy and flashy. One of the things that makes him badass is that he's he's coming in like it's almost by contrast with many of these previous emperors, and it's not just that he's contrasting with uh, Nero or Caligula or even Tiberius in his own way, but also that the Roman Empire itself is in a state of crisis we're talking about the year 68 and 69. It's known as the year of four emperors because everything is just falling apart. It's in crisis. So what makes Vespasian so badass? Rome had been under the Julio-Claudian dynasty for several decades. And with Nero, the last of the Julio-Claudians, when he died, we're looking at a civil war. We're looking at chaos because we've had several emperors and you've had a sort of clear line of succession. You know, Whoever the current emperor is formally adopts one of his relatives, whether by blood or by marriage, to be his official son, making him the heir to the empire. Nero hasn't done that. So when Nero's dead, what's happening? People are so used to thinking in terms of emperors by now, instead of the republic that had happened over a century ago, that uh, you have various people trying to claim the throne the year 68-69 is known as the year of four emperors, because in this year you actually have to mark the emperors, the official emperor's reign, not just by the month of their reign, but even in some cases the day of the month uh, that they started or ended their reign, because things were just, there's a lot of turnover in that job. So whatever you may think about the fact of having an emperor. Officially known as the Principate because the official term was princeps, first among equals. You know, whatever you may think about uh, that as a system of government, from the point of view of many of the Romans of many different classes, even if it wasn't perfect, there was a sort of stability. And we've had about a century of not having civil war
0: right so i mean the the last civil war that they've had was was augustus fighting against brutus and then julius caesar times uh augustus taking over this is about 100 years ago it's about as far away as world war ii is for us today so that's a good way to think of it it was like you know pre-world war ii like okay i mean we hadn't we had a republic back then but very few people alive today remember it very few people alive today remember the Civil War, but we've all been hearing stories about it. Like you like you and me have been hearing the stories about World War II. I'd really rather not go through that again. It sounded pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. And so you have this kind of time period where uh, we all kind of remember this, but it's it's far enough away that like we don't really want to go back to it. People who are alive have only ever known emperors and don't really want to change the system of government. But let's look at kind of the stage here. Let's look at the world that Vespasian is walking into. The previous emperors are kind of a mixed bag, right? Augustus is is pretty generally considered to be okay. He's probably the best one. He's the most famous one. He had his flaws, but for the most part, he built the Roman Empire into what it would become in the future. He was succeeded by his children who were, like I said, hit or miss. Uh, Tiberius had his crazy sex palace on Capri, murdered a bunch of his own successors, then abandoned government to a guy that uh, was executed for almost overthrowing him. Then you have Caligula, of course, who was also a sex fiend. He appointed his horse consul once. He declared war on Poseidon and had a bunch of catapults shoot the ocean and then collect seashells as tribute. That guy was murdered by his own bodyguards and replaced by Claudius. Who was pretty much dominated by Agrippina. Claudius is there's been a little bit of revision like looking back at him and and making him a little bit maybe taking a different take on him but for the most part uh, people have considered claudius to be kind of weak
1: weak but not one of the bad emperors not
0: evil right not not like outwardly or openly evil then he's followed by by nero who was kind of a narcissistic tyrant who burned a big part of the city to the ground possibly on purpose because he wanted to build a big golden house for himself there He used to drunkenly run around pretending he was Hercules and was such a nightmare that the Senate declared him an enemy of his own empire and ordered him to kill himself. And it's just excess wealth debauchery. Nobody knows what the hell's going on. Everybody's just extravagant, having big parties, getting drunk, being crazy. And then when that line ends, it's what happens. In you know, succession is a big problem for empires and kingdoms throughout all of history. Who's going to take over? Well, it's the guy with the biggest army. So like, let's all just kill each other, and the last man standing can be emperor. So like you said, 69 is the year of four emperors, and uh, Vespasian is the fourth.
1: And I feel comfortable calling Claudius a good emperor because the Senate considered him a good emperor. So the Roman Senate, if you're an emperor after you died, the Senate could declare you a god, and you know Augustus was declared the divine Augustus. Claudius actually was declared the Divine Claudius. So that's why I put him in the the good bucket,
0: yeah, I like Claudius. He was just kind of like an older guy. And like the oh, Praetorian guard yeah. came in. They're like the worst bodyguards in the history of of any kingdom ever. The Praetorian guards come in. They kill Caligula because Caligula is is a threat to himself and everyone around him. They come in, they murder him. Claudius, the story is Claudius was hiding behind a curtain or something and they found him and they're like, hey, you're the emperor now because you're like next mm-hmm. of kin. And Claudius was like, okay. And he didn't set the empire <laughs> <Yeah>. on fire.
1: <laughs> he didn't set the empire on fire. You know, Nero was complicated. And even though um, actually Agrippina, uh, his mom tried to have positive influences on him. Like he had a tutor. He had this guy, Burris, who was sort of like a handler. That their influence could only go so far. And yeah, Nero, Nero became problematic. So anyway, so now we zoom in on Vespasian. So he's the guy who, spoiler alert, comes out on top after the year of four emperors. But how does he get there? And why is it unusual for him to be this guy? So let's think about Rome. Uh, Rome is a very status conscious place. The class you belong to, the family background you come from matters a great deal. Uh, When I say Rome, often I mean Rome, the city, as opposed to the Roman Empire, which encompasses the whole Mediterranean, basically just fanning out from the Mediterranean. You've got this huge territory controlled by Rome, uh, ranging from Turkey or what they called Asia Minor in the East over to Spain and France in the West, you know what we call Germany up to the North, and then the whole Northern part of Africa, including Egypt. And I want us to have that image, like this whole map of the Mediterranean in our minds as we go into this, because I'm going to be talking about Rome, the city, but also there are things happening all around the empire that are going to converge on Rome, the city. There was a prejudice against people who weren't actually from Rome, the city. And this could even mean the rest of the Italian peninsula, And in addition to class in general, if you're in government, if you're in politics, there is a very particular prejudice against people who are from non-senatorial families, because senatorial status was kind of, it was actually hereditary. So if your dad or your grandfather was a senator and you were a guy, you could become a senator. And there were ways of becoming senators that were not hereditary, but they were... You know, you had to work at it. And the people who were from established senatorial families kind of looked down on the newcomers. So anyway, all of those things that I've just told you, coming from outside the city, from parts of Italy that are not Rome, coming from a non-senatorial family, and... Vespasian, our guy, not only was his family non-senatorial, but his father was engaged in money lending. and historians call him a muleteer. so he may have been in the trade of trading mules or driving mules or some sort of some sort of not very glamorous profession, some sort of not very glamorous trade. So here's this guy, Vespasian. Now, on his mother's side, on his mother's side, he um he actually can, trace a little bit of senatorial ancestry, but the class doesn't come through your mother.
0: Yeah. So like you said, Romans believed that if you weren't from Rome, you weren't really a Roman, you were just an Italian, which is, you know, if you look on the map of where Vespasian comes from, it's not that far away from Rome. You kind of would think, oh, it's the same, but for them, it's not the same, right? So, yeah, he's born Titus Flavius Vespasianus. I don't know if I'm saying that right, Pat. You're gonna have to correct me.
1: Yeah, I mean, he would he would probably have said it Titus Flavius Vespasianus, but you can just call him Titus Flavius Vespasianus. Yeah,
0: he was just a he was a big bald military guy. He was from an equestrian caste, like you said. His dad was probably a tax collector or a muleteer, which I love as a name for a person who drives mules. He was equestrian caste, which is kind of like the warrior class. It's not the senators, not the not the aristocrats and uh, just like kind of a country guy. He had an accent. At this time, everybody was trying to mimic the emperors, right, because the emperors create culture in Rome. And all of these emperors, Nero and Caligula and, and Tiberius, they had these big parties and everything was flashy and gaudy. And this guy was just kind of like down to earth, just from a farm or whatever. He's you a know, military guy, very simple, very, this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. Like Clint Eastwood walking up to the Capitol in the Hunger Games This is how I'm envisioning this guy. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, yeah, so we've got this guy who's an outsider, very down to earth, and he makes his career in the military. And in the year 66, Nero is still emperor. You've got the whole rest of the empire to pay attention to. And some parts of the emperor are easier to keep under control than others. And over in the east, there's this region called Judea. And from Nero's point of view, from the Roman's point of view, it's a pesky place. And... Uh, There's actually a prophecy floating around, supposedly, that uh, someone coming from Judea will rule things, will rule the world. Okay, fine. Okay, prophecies, they never mean what you think they mean, but you still feel like you have to pay attention to them. But also from the Romans' very pragmatic point of view, you need someone to keep an eye on things in Judea, and it's, it's annoying. Nero wants someone in charge in Judea whom he can rely on to keep things under control from the Roman point of view, but also someone who's not too prominent. Because if someone is in charge of legions, or if someone's in charge of a province somewhere, and they're maybe a little too famous, a little too flashy, a little too prominent, Nero might see them as potential competition.
0: Yeah, and Vespasian was the perfect guy for this, Yeah, because when you look at where he'd been before this, right, so he was like this country guy, good upbringing, and up until this point in 66, he had been a career military guy. He served in thrace he served in egypt he commanded the second legion during the invasion of britannia Um, he was like the commander of the legion when they fought through they fought along the thames and then southwest into cornwall and somerset he'd been wounded in battle a couple times he took a he took an arrow to his shield and a rock to his knee but he was like a war hero in britannia he became a consul of in 51 but pissed off our friend Agrippina, got scared of her and quit because he didn't want to face retribution. And so for the last few years, they would positioned him out in North Africa, kind of the middle of nowhere for if you were like a Roman and you were worried about somebody trying to seize power in Rome. He was a governor in North Africa where he had made a name for himself as kind of a, the people in North Africa liked because he was surprisingly not super, super corrupt like every other Roman governor of North Africa had been up until that point. But he's the perfect guy to send him to Judea because even if this guy has some military victories, they're in a very distant part of the empire and this guy is never going to become emperor, right?
1: No, of course not. Who would ever think that? So Vespasian, you know, he's out there he's out there in Judea putting down the revolt. And meanwhile, back in Rome, Nero dies this guy galba who is the head of some legions out in spain is proclaimed emperor by the senate galba is within a few months overthrown by this guy otho okay i'm i'm gonna number these guys so it's the year of four emperors galba's the first of the four emperors Otho's the second vitellius is the third and vespasian's the fourth and i'm just saying that because it took me a while to be able to tell them apart or keep them straight So uh, Galba, the first guy, he came across as not like Nero, and that's why people thought he might be an okay emperor. The guy he was replaced by, Otho, the guy who overthrew him, actually was kind of Neronian, and Otho tried to present himself as being like Nero in an attempt to appeal to the people who missed Nero, because not everyone hated Nero. Some people loved him.
0: As it is with politics. (laughs) As it is,
1: as it is. So Otho tries to present himself as being more like Nero. And while Otho is emperor and alive, another guy, Vitellius, this is guy number three, is also claiming the throne. And there were these legions stationed out by the Rhine River, you know, modern day Germany. And they were the ones who actually started acclaiming Otho as emperor. And then Vitellius defeats Otho. Otho commits suicide. Vitellius... Guy number three becomes the emperor. He's proclaimed by the Senate. But Vitellius doesn't have all that much support aside from those particular legions in the Rhine, the area of the Rhine River. You know, the saying like, oh, yeah, you and what army? Um, Well, in this time and place, that's kind of how things work. All of these various claimants to the throne need the backing of the army. You don't just show up. You have to build credibility. You have to build a support base. You have to build, you know, oomph and defend yourself from other people who have legions supporting them.
0: Right, and so like, I mean, if you look at these four emperors, right? Galba, the first one, he shows up in Rome in 69 for the first time and he's like, hey, I'm here, I'm gonna be the emperor now. And then Otho's army shows up to kill him. They cut Galba's head off and chopped the rest of his body apart. They put his head on a pike and paraded it around town. Vitellius shows up a few months later and does something pretty similar to Otho or at least threatens to Otho kills himself before they decapitate him, but they do definitely like display his body publicly as as another false emperor so so yeah, you and what army is important because anybody can be declared emperor, but you need some friends or you're gonna be in big trouble that imperial uh, robe isn't gonna do much to protect you from uh, from a broadsword yeah
1: so the question of who's supporting you and how big a stick do they have and how many other sticks do they have? Any friends with sticks do they have? And do they trust the friends or are the friends just sort of opportunistic mercenaries? You know, meanwhile, this is going on in Rome. You know, Galba's head is getting paraded around like a cake pop or something. And
0: I'll never meanwhile, be able to eat a cake pop the same way again. Oh no, you know, I just ruin cake pops for you.
1: meanwhile, out in the region of the Danube River, there were these legions who had supported Otho, guy number two. And okay, so remember, Vitellius is the emperor, but of course the empire is a big place and he can't be equally in charge at all places at all times. So uh, these Othonian troops, they heard these reports that Otho was dead and they, these guys, they'd been doing what armies sometimes do and, you know, raping and pillaging and just kind of behaving wantonly and they were worried that if they made it back to Rome they would face punishment for just pillaging and just behaving badly so they're thinking to themselves okay what do we do what do we do what do we do uh we should find some other guy like if Arthur really is dead we should find some guy to like look after us So, you know, hey, the Spanish legions had found a guy to proclaim emperor. The Praetorian Guard had found a guy to proclaim emperor. Hey, let's jump on the proclaiming a guy emperor bandwagon. So the legions, they they kind of put their heads together and they think, okay, who do we know? Who do we know? Now, some of these soldiers had been serving in Syria before being transferred to the Danube. And they said, hey, wait a minute, that guy, our old boss, Vespasian, we liked him. So the other soldiers supposedly unanimously voted to acclaim Vespasian as their guy.
0: And this is awesome, right? So they're just like, we need a dude, like you said, and they recruit Vespasian without him being there. And then I guess he gets the word that's like, hey, like half the army thinks that you're the emperor now while he's off in Judea, like trying to put down a revolt. (laughs) But it's because he was cool. It was the same thing as why they liked him in North Africa, because he didn't he wasn't corrupt and just taking advantage of everybody. He wasn't one of these legionary commanders who was using his soldiers as a stepping stone to uh, to his political career or was like beating them up or was was cruel with them or any of that stuff. They all liked him and they said you should be the leader because you're the best option. But now he's got to like question his loyalty <laughs> to the emperor. So
1: this seems like a good place to take a break and we'll pick it up again on the
2: flip side.
1: Yeah, so he's not actually there. These legions that had just acclaimed him, they have to just kind of keep on legioning around the Danube and Pannonia. And Vespasian, he had been in in Judea. He was also heading towards Egypt because Egypt had become the breadbasket of Rome. Uh, The grain that was produced in Egypt was just so important for supplying tables in Rome and, in fact, all of Italy. So if you want to know why Vespasian was in Egypt, he was keeping an eye on the grain supply, making sure that Romans could get their bread. It also put him in a position to choke the grain supply if he decided to do that. So there are shenanigans in Rome. Remember that Vitellius is there in Rome. His supporters are there in Rome and also elsewhere in Italy. And two of Vespasian's supporters, Mugianus and Primus, are there.
0: And of those two supporters, Marcus Antonius Primus was actually the man who overthrew Vitellius, guy number three. But he's a badass. We'll talk about another day.
1: Okay, so obviously the troops in Pannonia support him, but do the gods support Vespasian? And this is a very Roman way of doing things. I mean, the Romans aren't the only culture that that do this, but uh, you have to imagine Vespasian. He's in Egypt. They have different gods in Egypt. Now that doesn't phase Romans because Romans are very good at just sort of assuming that all the gods are kind of either connected or actually kind of the same or whatever, you know. And so he proceeds to the temple of Serapis and he is doing this alone. He goes up the stairs. He enters the temple. Everything is silent. He approaches the statue of the god. And then something makes him turn around. Oh, hey, Basilides, my faithful servant, what are you doing here? And Vespasian was surprised that he could see Basilides because not only, uh, was Basilides' mobility impaired, and it would have been very, very surprising. It would have been very hard for him to walk up those stairs on his own, he was, because if this was Basilides, there was no one helping him, and he didn't have any mobility aids with him. But also carrying the offerings that you're supposed to carry to the temple, Basilides, I thought, I didn't think you were in town. What are you doing here? Well, maybe it was Basilides' Maybe it was a vision from the gods. And at that moment, a messenger arrives. There's news from Cremona in Italy. (gasps) Vitellius' troops have been defeated. According to one of the sources, the messenger also said that Vitellius himself had been killed. Is it coincidence? Is it a sign from the gods? So, Vespasian, who has been acclaimed by his troops in Egypt. So they decided that they were going to acclaim him too, um, in addition to those guys in Pannonia. He's actually being acclaimed by an army, by legions that are actually in the same place that he is in. He's sitting there. He's acting the part of emperor. He's sitting in a tribunal. You know, He's holding audience. Petitioners are coming to make requests. Two guys show up. One of them is blind, can't see. There's some, he's got some disease in his eyes, and the other one, his difficulty walking. He, you know, he does not have full use of his legs, and they ask Vespasian. They beseech Vespasian. Heal us, O Vespasian. And Vespasian says, um, I'm an emperor, Jim, not a medical doctor. And the, the guy who's lame, the guy who can't walk, says, Emperor touch my knee with your heel. And the guy who can't see, the blind guy says, "Anoint my eye with your saliva." So he does. He, you know, lifts up the hem of his toga and touches the knee of the one guy with his own heel, and he spits in the eye of the guy who can't see, and behold, they are cured. <laughs> And so you've got this, you've got this miracle, and you've got the miracle of facilities appearing in the temple. And then also apparently, apparently reports have it that far away in the region of Arcadia in Greece, some soothsayers tell people to dig in a particular place, and they dig up some clay items. They might be pottery with paintings on them that look a lot like Emperor Vespasian. His coming was foretold in uh, vase paintings. So clearly, clearly the gods favor Vespasian. Okay, now I'm going to give you some calendar dates. Okay, this is actually relevant to how badass Vespasian is. So Vespasian is acclaimed as emperor in Egypt in July of the year 69. And since he has control over the grain supply, he could actually bottleneck it. He could hold up the grain supply if he ever needs to use that as leverage to get his own way. On December 20th of the year 69, uh, Vitellius is killed for real, and the Senate instantly acknowledges Vespasian as emperor. And here's the thing. It's been six months since the legions in Egypt have acclaimed Vespasian. And Vespasian actually gets the Senate to do something. um, This is unusual. This is unprecedented. He gets the Senate to issue a decree to pass a law, basically backdating his emperorship to July of that year. So... Uh, every All of the actions that Vespasian had done for the last six months, even before the Senate officially proclaimed him emperor, uh, get like retroactively ratified. So he's proclaimed emperor by the Senate, even though he wasn't there and he was in Alexandria. And what does he do as emperor? He puts down rebellions, he expands the boundaries of the empire, which is kind of a big deal um, because if you expand the boundaries of the empire, you actually get to move the city walls of Rome. You get to make that a little bigger. He Works out his relationship with the Senate, and some emperors had good, good or good-ish relationships with the Senate. Um, some of them had a very hostile relationships. Some senators just loathed some of the emperors. For example, Nero. Right,
0: and yeah, you've seen like some really combative interactions between emperors and senators before. And going back to what you were saying before, the thing that separates Vespasian as emperor and like. You know, the narrative of uh, I wasn't even there and I didn't even know I wouldn't even want to be emperor, but you guys made me, you know, that that could be a little bit of propaganda on his part. He could just be kind of clever. But the deal with Vespasian is that once he takes over. He's not killing and plundering and mutilating and destroying all of his political enemies and using the the treasury to buy himself a huge palace. He kind of keeps his old way of doing things. Not really big like pomp and circumstance compared to some of these other guys. Rome was on the brink of collapsing into different kingdoms. Every legion was going to proclaim its own emperor. And then you were just going to have different countries eventually, right? And because he's able to work with the Senate and also with the military, because they respect him, he is this stabilizing force, right? And and one thing worth mentioning with Vespasian is that this is happening in 69, 70 AD. You know, you always talk Pax Romana, a thousand years of peace, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. This was an empire for like, you know, 60, 70 years at this point. Uh, there is no Pax Romana without Vespasian kind of arriving at this very, very critical moment in Roman history and saving it from from fracturing apart. Just him not being crazy or him just being uniting was Was badass by itself.
1: Yeah. He had exactly. He had many previous emperors to kind of look to as models, and he mostly looked at Augustus, who was generally regarded as good. After the Civil War, Augustus tried to have like sort of amnesty, like not be overly harsh and vindictive to people who had fought against him. Vespasian does that. You know, one particularly notable gesture is that Vespasian gave a generous dowry to the daughter of Vitellius, guy number three, who was Vespasian's most bitter rival at the very end. And was was this generosity? uh, Was it reconciliation? Yes. Um, Also maybe a little bit strategic, right? Uh, Because you want to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Uh, He's uh, there are anecdotes about him being sort of like a crotchety, down-to-earth country guy. Um, you know, Ben, you mentioned that he had an accent, and there's a story that someone tried to correct his accent, his country accent. Vespasian just makes fun of him for it, and you know, it's like, oh yeah, no, I'm owning the way I talk. I think it's really indicative of him that, well, he taxes the public bathrooms, and why would you do that well it's tax revenue right you need money to run an empire especially if you're patching up an empire that's just been through a year of four emperors and his son titus remember this is titus who had been his lieutenant in judea and who was vespasian was making sure he was getting super educated vespasian was preparing him to be his successor um anyway titus and vespasian are talking and titus says Come on, dad, you're taxing urine. Doesn't that smell? Ugh! and like, what a an inelegant thing to do. Oh, come on, dad, you could be better than that. And Vespasian takes a coin and holds it under Titus's nose and says, okay, son, does this smell? And Titus says, well, no. And Vespasian says, and yet this coin came from pee.
0: Yeah, interestingly, he also began construction of the Flavian Amphitheater, which is a structure we know as better today as the Roman Colosseum. Uh, which I think is really interesting because you always picture Nero and Augustus being in the Colosseum, but but they weren't because Vespasian built it. Yeah,
1: and they actually built the Colosseum on land that used to belong to Nero's Golden House.
0: Oh, so the, so the section that because there was some there was some speculation that like the section of Rome that got burned down was burned down on purpose because Nero wanted to have a big plot of land to. Uh, to make his golden palace, but instead it became the Colosseum, I guess.
1: <laughs> Another example is this guy, Medius Pompusianus. What Medius Pompusianus did was request an astrologer to make a horoscope for the emperor, for Vespasian. If you're not actually the emperor and you want an astrologer to predict the horoscope, to figure out the horoscope of the emperor that's pretty sus because why would you want a horoscope of the emperor
0: it's worth mentioning that this isn't like a newspaper horoscope this is like your star chart that basically predicts the course of your life including theoretically the date of your death
1: yeah and if you got one of those in your possession you know the emperor's gonna want to know why and vespasian's friends tell him about it they say watch out for this guy Medius pompousianus and uh, an earlier emperor Tiberius actually was very harsh on people who cast horoscopes. For that reason Tiberius was kind of paranoid. Vespasian not only brushes off the fact that Medius Pompusianus had drawn up a horoscope for him, but he even makes Medius Pompusianus consul.
0: Yeah, might as well, right? Like like you said, keep your yeah. friends close and your enemies closer. Yeah. At least as a consul he could keep an eye on him.
1: <laughs> you know, he emulated Augustus in other ways. Augustus liked to promote this image of peace. Vespasian Put up this temple to peace. You could deify abstract concepts in Rome. There were a lot of writers and intellectuals flourishing under Vespasian.
0: Yeah, he funded a bunch of writers. It is Suetonius, Pliny the Elder, Josephus. They all they all met him at uh, various times and got funding from him. Uh, Flavius Josephus wrote the Jewish War about Vespasian and then later his son Titus's battles in, in Judea, putting down the revolt there. And most of what we know about it is is from this text that was funded by, by Vespasian, which is kind of interesting because he's the enemy to Josephus at the beginning. The revolt begins in 66 with Herod Agrippa is the Roman governor of Judea. None of the people that live there like him. He's kind of a tyrant and uh, they have a revolt against him. Obviously, Rome can't stand for that, so they send the army. Uh, and Vespasian, w- like we talked about, was the guy that was sent. We didn't get too much into the war in Judea, but it, it was very, very bloody and brutal, and many people died on both sides, and And Vespasian had to be pretty harsh to like put down the r- revolt. But Josephus was one of the leaders of the revolting army. There were a couple different guys that were leading Jewish forces against the Romans, but Josephus was one of them, and he was defeated and he was imprisoned. Uh, but then Vespasian uh, employed him as a translator and then later made him a Roman citizen, brought him back to Rome. Josephus wrote the story of, of the war. And kind of interesting, considering that they were opposing generals at some point, that Vespasian would would fund... An enemy soldier, an enemy general, to write the history of the war that the two of them had together. Yeah,
1: yeah, interesting move. Mm-hmm. Interesting move. Bold move. Power move.
0: I mean, he probably got like yeah. editorial rights on the final draft. I'd imagine.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll never know for sure. But yeah, you do have to, you do have to read these sources with a, a critical eye.
0: Even if if it was very extreme editorial control over the final text of Josephus's book the book doesn't make the romans look great it's not talking about how awesome yeah. Vespasian is it's talking about how he's killing prisoners sometimes and sometimes very mm-hmm. brutally like repressing a, a revolt and and uh, destroying the temple of jerusalem like he doesn't have positive words for the roman army when he's talking about that
1: so yeah sometimes he can he can do things that are i think remarkably Smart, gracious, useful, high-minded. Sometimes he can just do total dick moves too. There was a dick move regarding the Marine Fire Brigade. Now, when I say Marine Fire Brigade, that sounds pretty important and useful, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like a public safety thing. Anyway, uh, the Marine Fire Brigade, uh, the, the members of the Marine Fire Brigade had to be constantly on the move between various places. You know, they were always on their feet, and they applied for extra money for shoes because they had to be walking around all the time because it was part of their job. And Vespasian turned down their request for extra money. And not only did he turn down their request for extra money for shoes, but he actually forbade them from wearing shoes and told them that they would have to do their job barefoot.
0: Why? Did he give a reason for it? I
1: don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like
0: Back in my day, we didn't have any shoes when we were in the war.
1: <laughs> Personally, I, I don't get it. I think it's probably some OSHA violation, but the Marine Fire Brigade kind of took it the direction that you were saying. And... They continued to not wear shoes and turned it into a point of pride for them.
0: Hmm. I mean he also he also tore down the second Jewish temple. That's kind of a dick move, also. He did, he That's did also a kind a dick of oversee move. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't win them all, you know. You can't.
1: <laughs> oh, you can't no, no, you totally can't win them all. He's my favorite emperor, but you have to understand this is in the category of Roman emperors.
0: So Right. You're gonna be real hard pressed to find one who didn't like slaughter yeah. a few people though. The,
1: okay, yeah, but by the standards of Roman Emperors, he was one of the good ones in the Senate the Senate thought so. And, you know, Vespasian is looking back over his life, over his career. He he wanted you know, he wanted to die standing up, as it were. You know, he wanted to he just wanted to go he wanted to be active up until the very end. And he well, okay, he was at he was really, really, really near the end, and I can't say he was on his deathbed because he wouldn't allow that. He insisted on standing up even though he had diarrhea. He had someone help him stand up, okay. And he, you know, he thought back over his career, he thought back over the emperors who had preceded them. You know, some of them were totally reviled by the Senate, reviled by posterity. Some of them were awarded divine status. And according to the biographer Suetonius, well, biographer, according to the historian Suetonius, his dying words were were what it's worth. The Latin is why puto Deus Fio or oh dear, I think I'm becoming a god.
0: He's a soldier. He wants to die on his feet, right? Yeah. He doesn't want to die in his deathbed. He stands up. Oh, I think I'm becoming a god. And
1: one of the benefits of having Vespasian as emperor is that he had an automatic, unambiguous plan of succession in place. So his older son, Titus, whom he had been you know, taking with him as a lieutenant to Judea, whom he had actually had educated at the imperial court when nero was emperor you know so titus really got to know the ins and outs of all of this so titus took over as emperor um history remembers vespasian as one of the good emperors his ability to hold the empire together allowed successive emperors including the antonine emperors trajan hadrian antoninus pius marcus aurelius you know who are remembered as good emperors permitted an era of stability, prosperity, and the historian Tacitus, who he was he's notorious for being able to throw shade at emperors he does not like. He says about Vespasian that he was the first person to improve after becoming emperor.
0: Going back to the beginning, what I was saying was the ones I like to talk about and the ones I remember are Caligula and Nero and that kind of thing. But Vespasian takes Basically, he bridges. It's Nero. Then it's all-out civil war, and then it's Pax Romana because of uh, because of Vespasian and his his steadying hand. He was a career soldier. He could definitely kick ass. He did it in in Egypt and Judea and North Africa and and all across Britannica. But at the end, it was his level-headedness and coolness and ability to exert his authority over uh, what was becoming an increasingly chaotic empire that uh, that really made the Roman Empire into what we think of when we think of it today.
4: Yeah, yeah.
0: I didn't know very much about him. I knew the name and I knew a little bit of, of, about him. but. I was kind of surprised when you said that he was your favorite badass emperor and having gone through it together, like I, I can see why.
1: Well, thank you for asking. Yeah. It was so much fun. So much fun talking with you about Vespasian. Yeah.
0: Uh, and, you know, we've got a lot of other cool, cool characters we're going to be talking about um, on the show in the future. And, you know, we've, we mentioned Agrippina. We mentioned the Venetians. We've got a bunch of other cool stuff planned and lined up. And we're really excited to get back on here and talk about it again in the future. So, thanks to everybody for for listening and I guess we will uh, we'll see you on the next one.
1: Badass of the Week is an iHeart Radio podcast produced by High Five Content. Executive producers are Andrew Jacobs, me, Pat Larish, and my co-host Ben Thompson. Writing is by me and Ben. Story editing is by Ian Jacobs, Brandon Phibbs and Ali Lamer. Mixing and music and sound design is by Jude Brewer. Consulting by Michael May. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeart. Badass of the Week is based on the website badassoftheweek.com, where you can read all sorts of stories about other badasses. If you want to reach out with questions, ideas, you can email us at badasspodcast at badassoftheweek.com. If you like the podcast, subscribe, follow, listen, and tell your friends and your enemies if you want, as we'll be back next week with another one.